Welcome to Interplay Conversations in Music. This is your host, Michael Shapiro. I'm so pleased to speak to today, Maestro Alexander Micklethwaite, directly from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Well, Maestro, how are you today? I'm very well, very well. Thank you for inviting me. Happy Fun little diversion of the COVID every day. Yeah, getting away from that. I'm here in New York, you're out there in Oklahoma. You conduct a great orchestra, you're music director of the Oklahoma City Philharmonic. And before that, you were in Winnipeg for many years, I know, as the music director. And I met you first at the Hollywood Bowl some, I don't know, 16, 17, 18 years ago when you were assistant to Salonen with the Los Angeles Philharmonic. Deborah Border introduced us and we had dinner together after with other luminaries, as it were after the Bernstein Mass that Marin also conducted. But being a music director of an orchestra these days, Alexander, is very different than being an assistant, is it not? I mean, what, you're, what could you describe to the average listener, what's the role of a music director in a place like Oklahoma City in 2020? Well, in 2021, yeah, Oklahoma City. So um, first of all, yes, there's an orchestra in Oklahoma City. Um, it's not just Cowboys and Wild West. It's actually a really fun place, I must say. And it's one of those hidden gems for me personally. I was 12 years in Winnipeg before, also a prairie town. And um, it's one of those, I feel like nowadays I love New York City. I lived in New York City, like LA, but I really feel like those smaller, mid-sized American cities, they have a resurgence. Um, people love moving back and uh, it's international, I feel, but small little smaller that one can do things that one might not be able to do in a huge city so i personally really really enjoy it in the first place uh, as a music director yes i mean of course we are on the one hand almost like a film director we prepare the music the film the material way before the first shoot the first rehearsal so this lots of work happens way before then of course the regular rehearsals and then the concerts um it's just the pinnacle and here the difference of course with every other director is that we participate actively in the play and guide in a way the whole thing as if you're a football coach and you're not in the sidelines you're running with the players on the field i'm running i'm not making a sound though but still running with the players on the field but this is really part just part of it of course and uh most part is uh behind the scenes then uh, fundraising and having interactions in the community with tons of people connect trying to connect 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 and that's something i really love to do and again which is nice in a city size of oklahoma so this is in a nutshell all i'm doing now the connections let's talk about outreach because it's a big conversation these days especially in what we do in classical music that there's an outreach to the community. In your mind, what does the word outreach mean? Yeah, that's huge. I mean, for me, uh, where to start? So let me go back to Winnipeg, to my time in Winnipeg. Um, we had a very strong native uh, First Nations population. We had a very strong uh, Ukrainian population, Filipino co uh, um population Mennonites. So just from this basis alone, 
I enjoyed going into those communities, trying to create relations, artistic relations, and then putting something on the stage with those communities together. Mm. So this is one way of thinking of outreach, of creating something new, coming, bringing the, the cultures together, and boom, there we are. Another one, of course, is just simply going to the, the, the most common one is going to other museums, other arts organizations and having outreach there. Easy. Two plus two um, equals five. Huh? Two plus two equals five. Two plus two equals, equals five. five. Meaning that when we go to another organization, the combination yes. of our organizations is greater than either could do. Don't you it's think? It's very well said. Yes, I agree. So would you bring concerts, chamber concerts, to the a museum, let's say, and around the art that's there? So what we did, um, let, I mean, I'm only two years in Oklahoma City, so I can talk lots of things there. With museums, what we did in Winnipeg was very fun. We had one, we had a, uh, a contemporary music festival every January. And here we did several collaborations with museums, where one was, for example, a chamber evening where the uh, ensembles were allowed to go into the vault, the famous mysterious vault of a museum where they opened the doors. And there were the, the musicians and the comp that had picked a composer, first of all. Each musician had picked a specific composer. So they knew the work, the music, and then they went in the vault and picked a piece of art that would work with their piece of music. And then we had like, I think, five or six different little chamber groups. And then they got those paintings upstairs, placed them nicely. And we had the audience in the middle, in a way, on movable chairs. And then they always turned to the direction of the new piece of music and piece of art. That was one way of connecting. It was really actually exciting. Do you see a connection between doing those concerts in the other locations with a new audience, let's say, and that new, new audience then coming back, let's say, to the main hall for symphony concerts. Has there been any direct relationship? Well, that's always this big question in how far there is direct relationship. I, I want to toot my horn, I guess. Toot? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, in, in, in for a while, I mean, in Winnipeg, we our we said our actually we we realized our classical audience was younger than our pop's audience, which is also more normal nowadays, I think. So, um, but yes, there was a there is definitely something where we open the doors to people and funders, let's say, also that got excited with different repertoire and with those kind of things that never be otherwise they wouldn't have come for Beethoven. No, I no offense, no yeah. offense, Mr. Beethoven. That's okay. Yeah. No, I know. One thing I've noticed in my own life as a composer and who conducts occasionally my own music is that the production, my most famous piece is my Frankenstein score, which is played with the, with the film, live with the film. It's unusual because this 1931 film did not, it was talky, but didn't have music. So it's done, the piece is done with the film. The thing we've noticed about doing it, and I've done 50 productions worldwide of this thing, is that the audience that comes in, I'm told by the general directors, is a different audience. They've never seen some of these people before. And I'm not talking about putting on a, on a Harry Potter spectacular, as they, you know, they carve out the music and they put on Harry Potter with the film. This is a different, it's kind of like a, a new art form and it was very vibrant. Now I know that when you were in LA, you worked with a good number of composers in, with, with Salon in, in the, uh, 
program that they were putting on. You know, the Green Umbrella series. Exactly correct. Is that something you could do or have done in Winnipeg or will do in Oklahoma when the lights come on again? You mean the contemporary series or? But contemporary series that's presented in a very dynamic, fresh way that it gets people in because it's quotes really cool to go. So, well, there are different angles to this. So one is, uh, as I said, uh, with different um, racial communities, right? Different um, communities. And in Oklahoma, I connected with, for example, the East Indian community, which was very unusual. Very nice. So what I did was I um, programmed the, uh, the concert music of the Life of Pi, which was composed by uh, a Canadian composer, Michael um, will come to me. And Life of Pi, obviously, is the story of this little Indian boy in the boat with a tiger crossing the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. And we had to hire actually a, um, a Indian, East Indian singer, Bombay Jayshri, and had three other Indian musicians from North America come to Oklahoma. So I had this little group. Nice. But the whole point was to connect with the East Indian community. So um, that was the fun part. So I went to the university and to other to the temple there. And we had this uh, big event beforehand with like 120 or something East Indian in their oh. saris come up. It was so beautiful. And yeah. they, I mean, they never came to a concert before. So that was in our regular masterworks, regular classics paired with Debussy, La Mer, and paired with um, Britain for C interludes. I mean, very obvious in a way, but still fun. And uh, yeah, so at least there we had a audience in the hall that had never been before. And now I am having, I'm friends with several of those and I see them again. So this, this is like one idea. The other one is really the whole, that kind of crossover Phil Glass-ish, um music that you were alluding to i think that uh, uh johnny greenwoods i mean certain composers that are not associated with your regular classical audience yeah um and that i am also putting into the season in well, in oklahoma for sure and here now talking with certain people that again that heard about that that are not interested in a symphony orchestra, but they're really interested in Sufjan Stevens, who I didn't know before, but maybe creating a collaboration with this gentleman and an orchestra or Bjork or Sigur Ross. I mean, people that are on the fringe in a way and yeah. then pair that with Beethoven. Well, that's the point. Yeah. It's, all cu it's, it's cumulative. One thing builds on the other, I think, in these circumstances. There's no great fix with any one thing, right? What? But you put them together and suddenly there's a vibrancy. There's a reason, raison d'etre en français. There's something, to, reason to be. Choice of repertoire. We talked about outreach. Now, obviously you have great training. Uh, I know that you, you, who you studied with, some wonderful people. You've been with the LA Philharmonic and you've been with these two wonderful orchestras as music director. Winnipeg now in Oklahoma City. And I noticed on the Oklahoma City website, if there were to be a season, <laughs> they were going to be featured with different composers. There was Shostakovich night, Beethoven nights, Sibelius night, whatever. You, you had separated it out. 
talk to me about programming, how you shape a season of so-called classical concerts, pop concerts. I mean, they some of the orchestras tend to ghettoize it a little bit, you know. This is the classical series. This is the pop series, which to me, I think is a bit problematic in what I think you're going for, that we don't ghettoize the fact that it's just Sibelius. Well, you know, the Sibelius with his idea of nature have a place, right? Have a place, perhaps. You see where I'm going? Well, I mean, for me, it's more, I mean, the first question is, or the goal is to create a relation between, in a way, me and the audience, the audience and me. And I'm saying me, not orchestra, because, I mean, of course, the organization and the audience, but in the sense, me with being the programmer mm -hmm. comes up with those ideas of having um, contemporary composers mm -hmm. uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the season. So it's more, okay, how do I create a bigger arc that they see, eh, okay, first of all, I trust him, it's fun, and um, it's, it's interesting, there's always a little angle that is, oh, unexpected, but also familiar. So as you know, the range, the audience range goes from, well, it's, everything is there, right? You have to play pieces that were written 300 years ago to nowadays, and make somehow sense of that, which is very exciting to wow. figure out how to do. You do pre-concert lectures, of course, right? You do pre-concert lectures. I do pre-concert lectures, and I do post-concert Q&As, which I started in and Oklahoma. Your, and your podcasts, too. You have podcasts as well. We started a podcast lately, yes, since since now, <laughs> since COVID hit. Yeah, I'm, I'm an expert in the podcast field. <laughs> I bet you are. I have become so, you know, in addition to writing and suddenly talking to a lot of people, but it's a nice way to meet. And for us to connect after so many years, after so many years of your successes, to see now what you're doing in Oklahoma after the Winnipeg success. Um, I'm curious about, too, the development of an orchestra. I've looked at your predecessors, people who had the orchestra in Oklahoma City. But how does one develop an orchestra of this kind? Physically, I'm just talking about the, the players. Where are your players coming from? Well, I mean, here it's, it's again, I didn't know too much about it. There are so many universities in the Oklahoma area and um, most of them are professors and assistant professors. They are actually teaching and are <clears throat> really, really good. And um, so there's that angle. Uh, now from moving them, well, as every coach, I guess you stretch, you excite them with the with the right concerts, with something very exciting, with projects that are out unusual and that puts their mm -hmm. well, their their um, skill set up there on a new level. But overall, it's like um, well, actually, how to create how to move an orchestra level upwards that's always the big question yeah for me it has to do with recording and possibly um at some point uh moving uh, playing in other places like uh moving the, having the orchestra play i don't know in, in dc or something in new york so to move to a place 
uh, where they have to concentrate even more mm -hmm. and see what we can do under those moments of pressure. Mm -hmm. And then, oh my gosh, and then remember that, have this auditory memory. That's where we always want to get back to. And then slowly create this sense of, oh yeah, that pianissimo was softer. And we remember that. Let's create that same balanced pianissimo now, the next yeah, one. Exactly and suddenly you, you have this in, a, in the collective memory. And so you create this collective memory and go up and upper, uh, higher and higher. No, there's no question about it. I remember I, I, I once uh, did a guest at the Charleston, Charleston Symphony. I was working them in rehearsal on the night on Bull Mountain. But in the section of the in the in the, in the strings, the collective memory to get them to come down to where the, the beginning of that crescendo was very soft, but it had an intensity. Is this very creative memory you're talking about? It's the same exact thing. It's brilliant. You know, you've done a lot of different kinds of conducting, not only the symphony orchestra but you've also worked in film and you just mentioned recording. So I'm, I'm interested in recording because that's something that I'm obsessed with because I record now with the BBC and I've recorded with the, the city of Birmingham and other places and recording my chamber music. For a composer, it's very important to have a legacy that's recorded because there will come a time when all of this will, you know, will be like in the Brahms Requiem, <laughs> like the grass. So, Talk to me about what your aims are in recording, and then we'll talk about film. <laughs> well, I mean, it's more, the recording by itself is it's, it's what it is. It's more to find, in, in, in Winnipeg, I tried to find a niche where we could excel internationally, right? <laughs> that was the idea. Same with Oklahoma. Is there a place for Oklahoma City to compete internationally? Why not? Yeah, there is. <laughs> And so that is based on programming. Mm -hmm. And as you might know, Oklahoma City is the only state in the United States that is Indian territory, first Americans territory, 39 tribes, and um, completely unique. So there's a way of creating something for me now that is, first of all, programming-wise really interesting. But then, okay, well, it makes sense to record it. A from the back from the historic background um, to put something out there for everybody to know about, um, and then of course from the playing style, it's a different thing to to again. This has goes back to our memory question and skill question to slowly have the players adapt and be able to remember then how it sounded when it was perfect and get back to this faster. So does your does the orchestra's contract, union contract, have the ability to do recordings as part of its daily life? I mean, how is it working? Um, well, as you probably know, very complicated. And no, it's not a, it, not in the daily, it's not like in the BBC that we have a, it's a part of ours, not at all. Yeah, yeah. We have to kind of every time go through it to the committee, orchestra committee and um, get the funding, etc. Like, actually, I think most orchestras in this music, North America. Yeah, there's some that 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 put a, a generous recording element into their contract, and it's yeah. helped the orchestras. Yeah. Because don't you think the orchestras? I, I had this conversation with the manager of one of the British orchestras that does not do film recording at all, and I said to him, "Aren't you missing out on a large funding source for the musicians?" He didn't want to know from it because he thought it was beneath them. But I've never understood that. 
because the BBC orchestras um, very much are involved. And it's a great thing. It, it makes them fast in their approach and they think differently. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so tell me, tell us a little about these plans of recording once the lights come on again. Are, are there gonna be physical CD, uh, not CDs, but recording put out on Spotify, et cetera? What do you um, Well, yeah, I mean, I can't say too much openly yet. I mean, there are several, of course, record labels, classical record labels that we are uh, having conversations with. Good. And I think that's the first start, really. Yeah. And to have it quite official. <laughs> um, and yeah, to have a real thing going. And uh, of course, not for money or anything. It's not oh, for no. to sell millions. But really, it's mostly in this case for us, but in, with certain composers and directions, I believe that there could be repertoire that in the next 10 years that would be interested actually in Germany, like American Indian, certain composers and directions it could be very cool. Talking about German repertoire, um, I noticed from some of your background, although there's, you know, you've conducted a Revueltas and minimalists and all kinds of stuff over the years. Gavin Breyer, Phil, I mean, Phil Klein, it's, it's a very broad thing, discussion here and the people you've appeared before. But I'm curious to go into one of my favorite topics, the topic of conducting Bruckner and Mahler. Because mm -hmm. I know you've had some success with both. And can you say first, just generally, why? Why is it somehow in your genes? Not the fact that you're from Frankfurt on Main, or you, you know, you studied uh, in uh, in Germany, or you come from that background. It, 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 that is not the answer, I don't think. Why is Alexander Mikkelsbreit, music director of the Oklahoma City Philharmonic, very comfortable with those just those two composers first? Then we can we can shift to <laughs> Massenet. <laughs> what is it? Why? Um. Well, good question. Uh, I just know that, like, we just did Bruckner actually had the b most bizarre, let me, I'll answer it, but I had the most bizarre, positively bizarre uh, thing happen in Oklahoma in, in, in beginning of March. So it was the last concert we did before COVID hit, okay? Mm -hmm. Last year, I approached to, I mean, I'm trying to do more outreach going into the community and we went to a, I went to a place, uh, you, the Baptist University, mm -hmm. an hour east of Oklahoma, little town, you know, Shawnee. And I talked with them, hey, we'd like to come here. These are the possible possibilities and programs. We do Bruckner, blah, and Beethoven, and the, and they're like, oh yeah, we really would like to, that you to come here with Bruckner. I'm like, what? <laughs> I mean, Bruckner in general, right? It's like, I mean, I'm worried to do Bruckner anywhere. It's but not an easy they were like, yeah, yeah, no. So they were, no, no, we want the Bruckner. I'm like, what? Okay, so we went there with Bruckner, Seventh Symphony. And it was um, a university. I mean, there was, it was pretty packed, actually, the hall. Got a standing ovation. It was completely insane. It was most, one of, I mean, it was actually, I think, the most bizarre thing ever. Not the contemporary stuff. <laughs> do Bruckner there and be so appreciated. Anyway. So Bruckner is extremely spiritual. It's transcending more so than any composer, I think. It's like 
Mozart, romantic, coming from heaven, minimalism, all combined. <laughs> and it really goes to the bottom, I mean, to my heart. And I'm like, I don't know. So I really feel extremely comfortable with it and love it. It's, I think, Brooklyn 7 and 8, that's how I want to die. Well, take time. You're if young. I die, <laughs> please play that music. Keep on running. I know you're a big runner. You're an outdoors guy, too. Um, but then the case of his sometimes friend and maybe student, Gustav Mahler. Yes. <laughs> very different, very different person. I mean, I was speaking recently to a conductor friend who said to me, the difference between Bruckner and Mahler is God. I thought that was an interesting comment. That Bruckner is so, you know, easily with God, easy in his faith, while Mahler is questioning everything, every moment. And instead of looking out, which Bruckner does, Mahler is looking very much in, like Freud, let's say. So yes. I'm just curious if you're, if you're working with, let's say, uh, Mahler's fourth, the, the fourth symphony, which is probably his easiest piece as far as his mo emotions are concerned, is one thing, but attempting, let's say, Mahler three, which in Mahler's mind was about the universe. You know, what the birds tell me, what the nature tells me, what the sky tells me, what, what, what everything tells me, and then I'm spitting out my own malarian vision of what it is. When you're approaching those scores, let's say three and four, for the, you know, whatever time you're gonna do it, how does your approach differ? Looking at the fourth, with the singer and then thinking of the third, which is a wholly different universe. I'm just curious when you're studying them before you go in front of that orchestra, what's getting you there? What's getting Alexander Mikkelthwaite to somehow put through the vision that Mala has presented in very different ways? <laughs> well, okay, so A, I cannot talk about third. That's one of the I've two, yeah, I haven't conducted three, eight, and nine. Sorry. <laughs> but I can talk about four and, for example, tenth. I did the whole tenth symphony in Winnipeg, the Cook version, wow. which was a t musically maybe also one of the top three, the Bruckner, and then this one. I couldn't sleep the whole night after that. It was insane. Um, it's a very good question, and I, it's, I don't know how to explain it. Um, it's more for me, I guess, in general, and every conductor has a different approach. As I said at the beginning, we have this bizarre job of being the director and then also the performer or become one of the performers. Interesting. Well said. So it is really to become, as an actor, you become the role. Good. Every time you become that new role, you don't act it, you are it. And in a way, that's really how I feel on my level every time becoming it, feeling it so that it's just, I don't know, I'm putting this on, not even on, it's in it, it is. So with the Bruckner, uh, with the um, Mahler 10, it was so at the end, that first performance was I mean, so it it is, it there's a very famous stage director in Germany from the 40s, Felsenstein. Yeah, yeah. Felsenstein. I met him. 
by the way, at the end of his life. Oh my God. Yeah. In the You're same. so lucky. Yeah. He gave us and, <laughs> and as I understand, I mean, he was brilliant, but one part of the brilliance was that he was very practical, that he was numbers very clearly yeah. gave everybody his place, his role, and you move this way, duck, duck, duck. Very so, analytical. Yeah, yeah. For people who don't know, we're talking about a Walter, Walter Felsenstein, who wrote, who led the Komische Oper in East Berlin uh, for many, many years, which was known for incredibly well done drama in opera, where people really acted and on the stage, it was thrilling. And I did hear him speak Auf Deutsch for two hours once. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. But just continue with Felsenstein with the dots and the numbers. Well, I mean, but that's the thing. So to go into a granular level, granular level of directing and knowing the the, the play and the music, yeah. and um, be, but the point. So first of all, very very analytical, very clear. Oh yeah. Not musical in a way, and then make this so your second language that it becomes, that it sinks down and it becomes you and it becomes fully emotional, mm -hmm. but with that granular knowledge of directing. Yeah. I mean, it sounds bizarre, but I think that's really, for me personally, how I approach it. And then I with this, but yeah. No, continue. Uh, this is great. And then with a so with a with a with a Mahler ten, yeah. which is extremely difficult and annoying. <laughs> it's <laughs> like why, why, why? But um, it was to. I mean, that's that scared so whatever that that fast move is just to be so clear where you are. It's like almost contemporary music in a way, right? It's like it abstract. Is. It is. And and yeah, to really understand, okay, where is it to be then so solid? Um, sorry, my hands are going all over the place. Um, that one can step aside, then trust the orchestra and create this bizarre unity that also only happens in, in this business yeah. of um, where things fall into place and one is in the zone. That's always the final goal, right? This Michael Jordan thing, I'm in the zone. And you don't even realize you're getting one basket after the other. Do you stick out your tongue when you're conducting? Like I hope not. <laughs> no, no. Well, so to complete this wonderful uh, time with you, I, I do want to talk about, uh, as we wrap up, what you just spoke about, this granular approach to study and to performance. That I love when you say we're not only a leader, we're also an actor. Lenny used to speak about if he forgot himself in the piece after, you know, during the performance, you know, Lenny would say in his Lenny way, I was the composer. But it's similar to what you're saying slightly, isn't it? You know? Um, yes. I'm curious, this actor role that you talk about, which I like a lot, is it, it cannot be operative in certain music. I think there's certain music that lends to it like the Mahler to a certain extent. But you can you say it's really operative in the Mozart 41 or the Haydn creation or the Concerto for Orchestra of Bartok? Can you really do that in that music? I can understand it where it's music that is so extreme, like the Mahler 10. But is it really- Well, that's a very good, 
That's a very good question. I mean, at the end, okay, so I studied with Frederick Prausnitz yeah. at Peabody, and his book was Score and Podium. And um, many probably know it. And uh, so his idea was really for every composer to create, yes, of course, we want to start with a score. The score is the Bible. But at the end, who cares? I mean, yes, we care about everything there. You're talking to a end, composer, be careful. <laughs> I know, I know. But at the end, we are performers and we bring it to life in that moment. That's correct. And that means it doesn't matter if we intentionally create something completely outrageous or simply want to be true to the score. It always goes through our mind. Yeah, of course. Always through the emotions. And so Prausitz's idea was really to create that image that Alexander has off that score. And even if it's a contemporary one, it doesn't matter. I mean, it is always that add-on, which makes it unique. That big combination of everything coming, composer, orchestra, the, perform the understanding of the conductor. So Mozart, same thing, like Jupiter Symphony, first piece of the Freemasons in a way, Freemason inspired. Yeah. So I'm, who knows? I mean, at the end, I do try to find this kind of individual take at least, my excitement, oh my gosh, look at this. <laughs> and make it you won't see me reenact you know like crazy at all but at least internally it's like it becomes my and, and not in a bad way but it's not going to come out like zoroastro with a big hat and the magic flute to right before no. well you know this is we could talk for hours on this stuff i love talking shop and uh, mozart's right behind us so he's asking he's asking me all yeah. kinds of questions right now but we have to end uh alexander micklethwaite Conductor, extraordinaire, music director of the Oklahoma City Philharmonic. Thank you so much for being on Interplay. Thank you very much, Michael. Real honor. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is your host, Michael Shapiro, for Interplay Conversations and Music.